Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the second episode of the Print Circuit Podcast, where we'll discuss trends, challenges, opportunities across the print circuit engineering industry. I'm your host, Steph Chavez, and as a refresher, I'm a senior product marketing manager with Siemens with three decades of experience as a print circuit engineer and currently the chairman of the Print Circuit Engineering Association. So joining me today is Richard Barnett, Chief Marketing Officer with SupplyFrame. Richard, thanks for joining and being here. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Steph. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. It's, like I said, it's great to, great to have you here. You know, on our last episode, I talked with Chad Jackson, who is Chief Analyst and CEO with Lifecycle Insights, about the new normal that we're living in now, especially with what's unfolding in the industry and how things are it's just been totally chaotic yeah. you know, with the pandemic and geopolitical issues going on in the world. You know, I'd like to take a deeper dive into the topic and really focus on existing organizational infrastructure and why it's adding to the problem. You know, what is your take on that? There's an interesting pattern you can look at at most organizations that have design engineering teams that, you know, create or design hardware that's a part of their products or services to their customers. And it really spans multiple industries. I mean, it's the same pattern and issue, even though it plays out slightly differently with companies that are early in their growth period and high tech startups, you know, there's to the very, uh, you know, 20, 50 year old industrial equipment or aerospace and defense organizations stuff. What's interesting over the last few years is that we've seen it be very consistent, but it's a significant challenge and problem that essentially is really, you know, sort of faced a a significant turning point for many organizations where characteristically you would have these silos, these organizational silos that really haven't evolved that much in where we've seen massive digital transformation, oftentimes a lot more cross-functional integrated processes or collaboration inside the organization or across an ecosystem outside. We've seen this is an area that's been left behind. And, and what we mean by this is typically an organization that has an engineering orient, you know, team that has a set of engineering sort of competencies within that team. It often includes design engineering, component engineering specialists that are kind of a shared service across different programs or projects that are going on where they're reviewing obsolescence of critical parts and components, or they're making sure that there's compliance or governance around the AVL or the approved vendor list for key suppliers when those new design cycles are kicking off. And obviously it includes other functions oftentimes within engineering as well. That includes test quality assurance, other related activities, maybe design for manufacturing as well. But when we look at the kind of core electronic design components and the process of designing, selecting key components and building that into a design bill of material, what traditional organizations have given their, their engineering teams a high degree of autonomy to make those, those design decisions to achieve the top-level goals for that product or that design. Oftentimes, there's a reuse of maybe key components or design elements that were used in an earlier version or earlier generation of a PCB board design or another product. And sometimes that goes back, you know, two, three years, right? Because these design or product life cycles can, depending on the industry, can be as short as 18 months, but can be as long as three to five years. That reuse, that kind of let's build on what we knew before, and then let's try to pick the best design to quality decisions, but let's just pay attention to the parametric information. Let's make sure that it's, you know, built for design, that it has the appropriate attributes for that application, et cetera, has been totally fine and good enough. It's been a very stable set of what I call an authority domain around decision-making. The challenge has been in this new market is that 
that model that, you know, kind of good enough, the good old days, right, of sort of making those assigned decisions and then pushing them forward in a typically a linear process where there may be a checkpoint review with component engineering, and then it's kind of thrown over the wall to sourcing procurement to either buy and select sort of the early volumes of maybe the early build quantities or the first test quantities all the way up through that, you know, true new product introduction that's going to be on a path or a roadmap and a schedule for for ramping to volume, all of that's occurring really to the right, if you will, of that core initial process. And there's not really been a lot of common feedback loops or uh, collaboration. It's created a huge problem where organizations have been surprised and caught off guard by parts components being designed in which in this market reality over the last two to three years may be dead on arrival. There may be no available supply worldwide for that component or the component that was used in an earlier design, you know, just 18 months ago, particularly during the start of COVID. Now, you know, that had a, you know, six week lead time now is up to 45 weeks, right? I mean, we've seen that all over the place around almost every commodity category. This isn't just your most expensive, most critical to design, say IC or custom ASIC or something. This is really across the board. I mean, including what we call popcorn parts, you know, you're typically very low cost, typically assumed to be highly available passives, for example, like ceramic capacitors or, you know, transistors and diodes. You know, the root of this is, is process, but it's also incentive management. These organizations, design teams have been generally been held accountable to new design, new product or project being released on time to top level target design goals, but not necessarily on the commercial feasibility of that, either the ability to manufacture on time, the ability to ramp to volume on time or the ability to hit revenue and margin goals, even though there's a plan and there's a a notional target that's established, you know, typically early on. It's not really the engineering team's full responsibility or accountability to hit those goals that are further downstream. The other real common issue is, is what I call the, you know, the digital thread of, you know, intelligence around what's going on with those components, right? So oftentimes the information traditionally, the part component libraries of a CAD environment or an engineering shared environment for kind of a product life, you know, life cycle management where there's a repository of past bill of materials and design, a lot of that information has been static updated infrequently and only covers the parametric or technical details of that part or component. Traditionally, the big focus was on the, you know, years to end of life or the obsolescence status of those parts or components, particularly in industries that are building products or services that have a very long life cycle with the customer. And that's very true in industrial, very true in aerospace and defense, pretty true in automotive, right? Five to seven year kind of program life cycles, right? But what's been missing is the same intelligence extended into what's the supply market look like? What is the actual current and projected lead time? What is the current demand for those similar components? How popular are those engineering design decisions that a company might be making in a silo? How is it playing out in the broader ecosystem, the broader community of similar design engineers You know, that are working in similar application areas? All of this now is becoming incredibly important in order to design products and make decisions at the lowest cost of change, which is as early in the design process as possible, that have more intelligence. And that's that shared intelligence, maybe, that is connected or extended. So everyone's working off the same single source of truth. Everyone's making trade-off decisions that they're trying to balance design quality goals, feasibility of design, alternatives, 
maybe the cost of onboarding alternate suppliers, the overall cost of those components, and then the, the overall success of that product over its life cycle has now become the critical shared decision-making that needs to happen. But in most organizations that we, we work with today are in the reason they have collapsed those silos, but not in a structured, coordinated, top-down led alignment you know, way. It is React, firefighting mode, it is emails, it's Excel spreadsheets with bombs, it's calling suppliers, it's getting a quote, it's scrambling to find out who found the latest on what last week on that on those 15 key components that we had on critical part shortage and hey can design you know go back and redesign potentially either a sub portion of that overall design or even a complete product almost from scratch i mean a, a fundamental redesign cycle is now consuming anywhere between 10 to we've seen up to 60% of an existing engineering team is completely cannibalized with just trying to redesign existing products that are already released to market in manufacturing so that they can feasibly just make more of it equivalent to meet customer demand or to meet the, it's the same product design requirements and just play catch up. And everyone across the board is just burned out. I mean, you know, and, and so these conversations, this collaboration is happening in a highly constrained way, a lot of finger pointing going on. And the last element I would say that really shocks me is that at the C-level leadership, there is obviously an awareness of the problem, right? You know, there, there is a significant eyes on the problem. But the idea of what is a better answer, what's a better approach, there's not clear consensus at most of the executive teams that we start bumping into. You know, we talk to the CFO, we'll talk to a CEO, we'll talk to a general manager of a business unit, obviously talk to supply chain, very different views. I feel like it's a bunch of the blind folks, you know, touching the elephant, you know, in the room. And I, I can, oh, it feels like the, you know, the, the tusk. It feels like the tail. It feels like this big leg. That's where we need to anchor our focus. One of the design engineers at an aerospace and defense supplier was telling me that, you know, the best response he's getting from his C-level teams, you know, the last few months has been, well, what do you need? Do you just need more headcount? I'll approve more headcount for you to hire. And we were both were just laughing at that going, you know, throwing bodies at this problem is not the answer. So we're kind of in a crisis moment, but there's so much silver lining. There's so much, you know, this is a crisis that if we take the right steps, not just these organizations will be more resilient, but their success in the market will be better. Their customers will benefit. And there's an ecosystem effect here, too, where we're getting better intelligence, more collaboration, more agility built into the way we're going to market, that we're resigning products, and we're thinking about collaborating all the way through its life cycle. And it really is exciting to me, but boy, the cost and the challenge and the pain that everyone's been going through is just, you know, mind numbingly painful to me. You know, imagine so much golden nuggets in the, in the last 10 minutes of what you just shared with us. And I would tell you the first thing that jumps out at me is when I think about the infrastructure and how companies are organized, you know, from my last 13 years or 12 years within the mill arrow, but in my decade of consulting and working, whether it's commercial, medical, uh, military, aerospace. I mean, it's amazing how people stay in their swim lanes and their inherent walls built up. And the resistance to change is typically just what I see as like internal culture within a company. And that becomes the most difficult hurdle to overcome. I mean, when you talk about uh, design for resilience, you're talking about bringing external content and knowledge to the point of design. The problem is, is that there are internal battles that go on, um, where people, hey, that's my job or that's not my job. And so they, they stay in their silos. And 
The sad thing is, is that the way we've been producing in the past or functioning in the past is a just-in-time approach. Well, guess what? That that does not work anymore. I shouldn't say it doesn't work, but you will not be able to sustain and survive if you maintain status quo. You have got to adapt and evolve with uh, what we're seeing with the supply chain. Now we know, I mean, it's there, it's in our face, and we need to move on. And the companies that embrace this and adapt to it, they'll survive and be extremely successful. Those that don't will slowly fade away. It's, it's sad. I, I've witnessed this firsthand, firsthand. I refer to it as feeling the supply chain pain. And believe me, as a, as a board layout designer, it's brutal. And it's, I've seen it on projects, reiterations like you talked about, the spiderweb-like networks, the way our communication, whether it's stand-up uh, meetings or it's emails or it's verbal communication, we have so many opportunities to be optimized and better. But the problem is, is that companies are not willing to change it on the fly because a customer is not willing to pay for you to design their widget and pay for you to optimize your process to make their widget. They just want their widget. That's the trade-off. That's the challenge. So how do companies change and adapt? They're going to have to find a way. And there are many companies are doing this and are killing it. You know, when we talk about this linear approach, you know, this is the other play that's that's an issue. And, and you know, it's with our, our current process. You know, these linear approaches, as we observe them, how many companies operate today? And, you know, we're very complex. Can you expand on that even more? You know, especially when we talk about how we're functioning or lack of cohesive function and optimization. Well, like I said a little bit earlier before, I mean, part of this requires a systems mindset, right? Where you're thinking about the digital you know, aspects and knowledge and intelligence that we can apply to the part component, to the PC board, to the product itself, and then thinking about, okay, how do we collaborate with intelligence uh, you know, in, internally, right? So some of this is about extending the scope of the intelligence that we've already been investing significantly to empower engineers with more intelligence at their fingertips. So if they have a need for autonomy or if there's a design cycle that's kicking off and they want to be empowered to look at all the trade-offs and considerations, part of the move is to empower them with the right intelligence around supply market conditions. They don't have to be an expert at every supplier. They don't have to be able to you know, know all the supply market dynamics, but there's a bridge there, right, where you start introducing risk ranking, for example, or a view of you know red, yellow, green, even just as a huge start to simply try to filter out first level, kind of first level past quality mindset around supply market feasibility, et cetera, because now that's becoming, you know, it's additive. We're asking those teams to do more, but we can do this without breaking glass. We can empower those teams to operate the same way that they've done before, but with more intelligence, right? And and you change the scope of what they're, the outcomes they're trying to drive towards, right? And that becomes a new concept of how do we think about risk and risk of the product or risk trade-offs, right, in design cycles. So I think it starts there. It's about empowerment. It's about the same source of intelligence. But as soon as we step outside of that kind of core design engineering area, you're right. We need to be thinking about the new product introduction process in a different way. And the reason why I call the MPI process out is that we, you know, many organizations will have a at relative levels of maturity, fairly repeatable, somewhat formalized and maybe overly formalized bureaucratic approach, somewhat ad hoc in some cases. But generally, these MPI teams are really where there's an opportunity to build and extend a cross-functional decision-making that's better than what most companies are doing. Because really, MPI stakeholders typically are cross-functional. You, de- you generally need to have 
the right representation of program or project management across engineering teams that then extends into release management into manufacturing. So you have you typically will have some form of manufacturing, supply chain or procurement representation, finance, and then even commercial teams, right? They're looking at and understanding, okay, we have an initial design, but let's iterate and make additional trade-offs, either for assurance of supply or for cost uh, optimization, design for manufacturing, or just, you know, from a time to market perspective, you know, because some of the, the ramp to volume limitations are, are one of the guiding most critical factors right now. And so many organizations, particularly in regulated industries, if you look at medical device, automotive and Milero, have what I would call an MPI process that's on face, highly formal, but based upon a very bureaucratic procedural checklist based approach to ensure that there is documentation, that there's compliance, that, you know, that there's a review process that's meeting the kind of regulatory mindset, right, of, you know, either to quality or to external regulation. And that takes many different forms, right, whether it's FDA regulations, whether it's within Melero itself. We can build on that, though, and it needs to be, it it needs to look a lot less bureaucratic and checklist oriented and and much more empowered around dynamic trade-off analysis so that you can iterate and sort of see What's the net change of the sum of all the changes that we're looking at making on an overall risk score, on the overall target costing model, you know, on terms of accuracy, on even demand forecast changes, right? Incorporating those scenarios now more dynamically in rather than just having that artificial one number that no one ever believes is going to be achieved, right? All of that needs to come in together. And I would argue it's the MPA process, which is the starting point. But then the other aspect of this is, you want to look organizationally at where is the MPI process housed inside that organization. And companies that have a, a stronger center-led supply chain services organization are good holders of the flame, keepers of the flame, so to speak, of that MPI process. Sometimes organizations are, are a little bit more PL focused traditionally by a business unit function or maybe a manufacturing plant location. And it's harder to have it's it's you know engineering sort of coming into a different, directly into manufacturing or, or contained within a business unit. And so it'll vary a little bit around how that organizational model needs to evolve. But generally speaking, it's about thinking, how do we drive more intelligent decision-making? How do we improve the agility and speed of these decision-making cycles? And how do we make sure it's more cross-functionally visible with all key stakeholders so that as market conditions change or as the evolution of the product evolves, Everyone's aware and understands why decisions were made. And as the market can, you know, conditions change, they can go back to a digital model of that product and those assumptions and make those changes very quickly and then realign to whatever they need to do, whether that's alternate part selection, whether that's bringing in alternate suppliers, it's choosing an alternate manufacturing location. That's really at the core. It's a digital enablement of a, of a process that might be existing today, but needs to be super powered way beyond where it is today. We need to lean in on that aspect because the information, the technology, the, the intelligence is really all there. This is really about organizations, you know, it's a leadership challenge, right? Change management challenge. This is about reapplying that those capabilities in the right way. And you can start in different areas. You know, it's not a, not a big bang change, right? But you can start by empowering engineers or you can start by empowering sourcing procurement teams to, you know, work better, but we need to invest in this area. This is an area that's been left behind in almost every other digital transformation within the enterprise. We've we've had years of iterations and experience, almost two or three generations worth of thinking around redefining customer experience or redefining and thinking about 
global finance consolidation and managing in a dynamic uh, market, treasury management, cash management. All of this is, is leapfrogged, right? But we have not moved an inch in this area, in this zone, since the beginning of the first wave of digital transformation. And, and so there's no excuse for this. We have to lean in. We have to move. I couldn't agree with more. As we're diving even deeper into how enterprises leverage opportunities today, we clearly see that the touch points of the external data source, not surprisingly, the external to the spiderweb-like network of operations that, one, these touch points range from the part and price and demand, parametric search of alternates, you know, supplier ramp availability, part availability, and lead time, supplier geo-risk, alternative supplies with regarding to popularity, financial health, and, and capacity. Then you have these touch points that are external to the enterprise that were initially dealt with downstream. We now got to move them upstream. And I think you commented that, you know, basically by saying, you know, we're shifting left. I mean, can you give me your insight as to um, the shift left or your thought on that as well? We've heard shift left used in other context, but it's very relevant now because I think the idea here is that we need to have a, a systems mindset and we need to be thinking about root cause. We think about quality management, we think about root cause, remediation and productive action, right? Same mindset here, right? But if you really think about it from a systems perspective, where does resilience, where is the lowest cost of change and where where does the, the potential risk of locking in risk occur in a product's life cycle? It starts with design engineering. And that's the whole point of shifting left. What we have to do there is not just process-wise shift left and just put more pressure on design engineers, which are already being overworked and burned out and under pressure, right? But we need to empower new information so that those design engineers feel like they're looking at the same trade-offs as early as possible. They're not flying blind. Because part of this is, you know, you're going to get suboptimal decisions with very, very smart, you know, team members in, in design engineering and component engineering even if they just simply don't know what they don't know, right? So we got to start solving that problem. Take the blinders off, provide the right outside in intelligence, like you just said. The other aspect of this is, is that we also need a concept that is moving into more of a, an awareness that the information that's actually needed to make these trade-off decisions does not exist inside the enterprise, right? And that's a really important paradigm shift. Most organizations still today think, well, if it's in my part component library, if it was on my approved vendor list, I mean, we have in our ERP system, the last PO for the cost that we had for that part, aren't we good? Don't we know cost? Don't we know what's safe to select? Don't we know who our best you know, vendors are? The answer is no. One customer, I challenged them with this thought. I said, do you realize that 95% of the information that you have about your suppliers and your parts and components in your ERP system is inaccurate, that your MRP lead times are actually completely inaccurate? And, and they you know, came in and said, what do you mean? They would just think about it for a second. You have lead times that were set three years ago as your standard lead time for a part or component by a supplier. None of that is, is accurate today. That means all your enterprise systems that you've invested millions and millions of dollars or euros into over 20 to 30 years, they don't serve you here. And so if you start with that pre presumption, then change happens and it happens pretty quickly. But the other dimension of this is this mindset of if I'm only checking for obsolescence and the AVL, I'm good. And I would argue that it's table stakes. It's just table stakes. Like that doesn't move you down, you know, solving this problem at all anymore. It doesn't help you make any value added decision. It's only going to, it will reduce some risk. You don't absolutely want to select a part or components that's obsolescence. But the, the default lead times when we move into 45 weeks, 52 weeks, 60 weeks, 
that's exceeding the obsolescence risk of, of any available part or component that you're trying to protect. It, that's the issue that we need to solve for. I agree. I can tell you most double E's when they're selecting their parts at the point of design are picking from a library that is a static library of information that was done whenever that part was released into the system. They have no idea of availability, price. All they know is it's a released part in the library system. I think you nailed over the last 15, 20 minutes that you shared with us your thoughts. You've hit everything on the head. You nailed it. And you know now that we've established the problem, where it lies, which is in the process, you know, we need to get to the solution. And, you know, the solution is supply chain resilience. It's the capacity of a supply chain to persist, adapt, and transform in the face of change. This leads to the question, though, how can business manage risk and, and plan for a resilient future? That's what companies need to look internally and figure out for themselves what they need to do. I mean, you and I and many others, you know, we, we, we are publicly addressing this, but ultimately, like we talked about, Company leadership, they're the ones who got to implement the change and they're the ones who got to, to do this. Because I know dang well that the engineers down in the trenches, they want to adapt and change, but they are, they are locked in these swim lanes or in these inherent legacy processes that are not inherent, that were designed for resilience is not inherent to it. Richard, I, I can't thank you enough uh, for joining us and being here today and sharing your amazing golden nuggets with us. Thanks, Steph. This conversation, I think, is so absolutely critical. We're both very passionate about it, but I think we need to sing from the mountaintops a little bit because, you know, there needs to be this active conversation. Every single customer we're talking to, it'll play out differently, but these insights and the guidance, I think, that we can provide and learn from, you know, those that are leading the way are absolutely critical right now. So thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to the next opportunity to join the conversation. Awesome, awesome. The pleasure is mine. I hope this discussion uh, has been insightful and understanding how Existing infrastructures puts you or your your company at a disadvantage where resilience is not built into the design process, you know, while we adapt to move on to better supply chain resilience. So tune in next time for a deep dive into how knowledge enables supply chain resilience. Thank you. And I hope you continue to tune in and follow me on this Printed Circuit podcast. Mm-hmm.